The Empress against Profian? Politics. I'm through with all that. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that time fought to the death. I'm your Dungeon Master, Gareth of Green, and joining me, as always, is my full-time co-host and part-time dwarf tosser, Andrew Phillips. You have to toss me. (laughs) Nobody tosses a dwarf. And today we continue our hard-fought quest in our search... Dwarf cock. (laughs) In our search for dwarf cock. (laughs) That's, that's my new film, <laughs> Dwarf Cock, the movie. And today we continue our hard-fought quest in our search for that rarest and most coveted of idols, a genuinely good film. But instead, we rolled a one and found Dungeons & Dragons the movie, the film that put the board in role-playing board game adaptation. Cue the trailer. is not fit to govern an empire. The forces of darkness. You can control dragons. With the dragon army at my command, I can crush the Empress. This has got to be some twisted magic experiment gone seriously wrong. Have threatened to conquer a kingdom. What can I do to stop Profion? If you can obtain the Rod of Savril, you could control red dragons. I suggest we lay low, let the whole thing blow over, come back, rob everybody. There's one small problem. Problem? I kind of committed us to find it. Let the blood rain from Asgard! Trust me. I hate when you say that! Don't touch that! Kill them slowly. You finish the maze, you win the prize. must complete this task alone. You know, I love the way you track. I'll get Marina, you get the map. How you get the girl and I get a map? We gotta work out some new plans. I want them found. Do you really think you can steal my destiny? Be careful. You too. If you watched The Phantom Menace and thought, I wish there was more Senate hearings in my fantasy film, then this is the film for you. 
The Empire of Izmir is under threat of being torn apart by Jeremy Irons' aggressive scenery chewing in this poorly realised adventure romp. A host of TV actors and has-beens attempt to fend off his attacks, but their offence proved futile, and all are devoured by Jeremy Irons' gaping maw, much to the dismay of 40-year-old virgins everywhere. Now... I nominated Dungeons and Dragons the movie as today's episode because it originally coincided with the release of Duncan Jones's Warcraft. But since we've had a bit of a schedule reshuffle, we're coming <laughs> in quite late. Yeah. But I do think it still has a place, really. Warcraft and Dungeons and Dragons—they do seem to have an overlap in terms of fandom. So I do think this is really an apt film for us to approach, and it's certainly one that's been overlooked in time, I guess. Yeah, I suppose Warcraft is kind of an evolution from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It's like the next generation of that kind of thing of course it is yeah it's like the digital version of it really yeah yeah so andy is this your first experience with courtney loves dungeons and dragons the phantom menace <laughs> uh yes it is i kind of wish i'd never seen this film oh right <laughs> that bad eh? it will live on with me forever now <laughs> and it will never be undone it's like a darkness in your soul now just yeah. infecting your very being yeah it's like that thing inside bruce Payne. <laughs> and <laughs> Is it making your ears really red? Yeah, I'm getting really cold lips and really red ears. <laughs> Do you have any experience with the board game at all? No, no. I mean, uh, I know some friends of mine, they play things like that. I mean, they tried enticing me to do a Thunderbirds role-playing game, although that had nothing to do with that yeah. kind of role-playing, I think. Did you just get invited to a sex party? Yeah. A Thunderbirds-themed sex got invited, party? I got invited to Tracy Island in inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Thunderbirds are go. Yeah, he wanted to introduce me to Thunderbird One, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I have some friends that play this kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I'm not really that nerdy. No. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, um, I don't have any experience with the board game as well, the role playing tabletop game. Even the nearest I get to this kind of thing is I walk past Games Workshop every morning when I go to yeah. work, but that's about it, really. <laughs> yeah, I, it's like I am a nerd. I'm yeah. a nerd, but I guess my thing has never really been in kind of board games or Games Workshop or anything like that but people have asked me to join in with dungeons and dragons and i've said i'm not particularly averse to it no i would it's just i've never really found the time it's not really grabbed me at all i know that there's a couple of like there's aliens ones out as well like there's yeah. an aliens tabletop game that you can get as well like i'd be interested in that i think it's one of those things that if you are going to pursue it you have to sort of get balls deep into it really yeah you, yeah you do have to get immersed into it and no half what, measures and the thing is it does take up a lot of time which is something i don't have yeah really well although i've never really played the tabletop game i do have experience with the film i am one of the probably six people that actually <laughs> saw this film at the cinema when it was first released and um, i went to the roxy cinema which was a very small little independent cinema just down the road from where i lived and me and my brother jack i think were just the only two people in the entire theater <laughs> and shock horror we actually enjoyed it when we first saw it back then being 14 and 12 years old yeah i walked out thinking yeah that was okay yeah i mean i don't think it was the best film ever but we walked <laughs> out feeling positive about it i guess i was at that age of being about 13 or 14 years old where if a film just had slightly above ps2 level graphics i was really <laughs> i was like yeah this is great you just had to put something like that that's why i like johnny quest yeah i never watched it again after that i mean yeah. well until 
Well, and, and then Lord of the Rings came out. And then Lord of the Rings yeah. came out. That completely reshapes how anybody approached fantasy. And I caught Dungeons and Dragons, the movie, on Sci-Fi Channel just late one night, sometime when I was about 18 or 19. Where like, it should be. Where, yeah, definitely. It's a made-for-sci-fi type film. Yeah. And when I watched it again, I was like, I can't believe what I'm actually seeing. This film is utter shit. And yeah. I can't believe that any part of me actually enjoyed it unironically at some point. It's almost as if Sci-Fi used this film as their blueprint yeah it's like this is what we want our films to look like yeah. but yeah i can't even imagine because i remember when it came out there was an article on it in empire or total film or something like that and um yeah lord of the rings was referenced because obviously lord of the rings had been in production for quite some time when this yes. film was released there was a lot of buzz surrounding lord of the rings quite a long time because yeah. it's in production for ages and yeah obviously it is an inverted commas new line production but not really and you were saying before they they bought it Yes, they bought it for $5 million. <laughs> I'm not going to say that's a bargain either. So. No, no. <laughs> it's an incredibly small amount of money for what this budget really was, but we'll get into that later. But I remember people like comparing it to Lord of the Rings like it was like a tester. Like, yeah, this is what we're going to get with yeah. Lord of the Rings. This is like a precursor to what fantasy is going to be like today. Yeah. Yeah, I think Empire gave it like one or two stars or something One like star that. out of five. We yeah. actually have a little um, snippet of that review later yeah. on in the episode. And it's one of those things where like, I read the review. Obviously, it didn't make me want to go and see the film. Obviously. But uh, having never seen it, you can never quite get a handle on how bad something is until you actually see it. Put yourself in my shoes as well. I had collected Empire magazine since 1996, and I've not missed an issue since. Yeah. So I was fully aware at the time I saw this film that had been awarded one out of five stars. Yeah. And yet I still exited the cinema thinking, yeah, that was okay. How on earth did I actually come to that conclusion? It's just ridiculous. <laughs> I deserve a lifetime of humiliation yeah. for ever liking anything in this film unironically. You deserve a lifetime of pain. <laughs> There's a lot of that in this film. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of like grand fist shaking, you know, <laughs> that kind the, the, of overacting. I, I think it should be uh, called gesticulation the movie or something like that. <laughs> or there's testiculation a lot. the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of overacting in this. I think there's just a lot of people going, this is shit, but let's have some fun. For some people, anyway. Yeah. Other people just look petrified that they're even there. Yeah. Like Thora Birch just look like, what am I fucking doing here? <laughs> Yeah, all of her lines are just, like, monotonous, and it's clearly gone for that Queen Amidala character, which, in retrospect, just seems ridiculous, because Queen Amidala is one of the most nothing characters ever yeah. to exist. I'm not There's even sure she's there. even doing that. It just looks like she doesn't want to be there, and she's just reading the dialogue off some dialogue board, <laughs> some cue card. imagine a director coming up to her and saying, um, excuse, Thora, excuse me, um, could you do it again, but with less energy, less yeah. intensity? Can you yeah. just bring it down? I really I really want to be going to sleep during this What's slower and less intense? Yeah. <laughs> okay but before we continue on best forgotten movies we like to provide a little background on our subjects after all it's important to know where a film comes from before we look at where it went so what history is there behind dungeons and dragons the movie unfortunately there's very little for us to actually look at i yeah. think our uh, resources on this were limited to the imdb trivia section there's not even a wikipedia article about the making of the film and everywhere i looked there was not even like a making of documentary or interview or anything no. like that there was some stuff on the dvd but it was all fluff pieces that were made to promote the film i think it's one of those things where there's been a lot of legal stuff surrounding dungeons yeah. and dragons and i think there's a lot of this stuff that will never see the light of day because it's all on lockdown yeah with lawyers and things like that because it took a long time for even this version to reach the screen i know the guy who directed it had the rights for about 10 years mm -hmm. before it even got made yeah i'm surprised it took as long as it did to get made i mean this was released in the december of the year 2000 yeah 
And even so, at that point, it was slightly before the big fantasy boom when Lord of the Rings came out yeah. and everybody was pining for more sword and sandals fantasy epics. Mm. This came before that and there wasn't much fantasy about at that time. I reckon the 80s was really the period for a film of this type to come well, out I, when I, you have films like Krull and yeah. um, Lady Hawk and even Labyrinth and Jim Henson type films. And- yeah, in fact, this film definitely feels more of a piece with those 80s films. Exactly, like, yeah. Because there's, at the time when they made it, there was nothing else to go on. I mean, not even something like Gladiator, which came out yeah. obviously in the same year, which also set the template for sort of historically set films as well, because you can definitely tie parallels with Lord of the Rings and Gladiator oh, and yeah, all those well, kind certainly, of films. Oh, yeah, certainly, yeah. But they, none of those films that had come out, especially when they were making it, they wouldn't have had those films to view. So, yeah, it definitely feels more bogged down in the 80s. I mean, for me, this is almost like a modern-day Masters of the Universe canon film. It's it is. Almost like a mod- oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's like it a, a modern-day like canon, canon film. film, yeah. Definitely more on the canon side because those films, even though they're not amazing like Krull and Dragon Slayer, the, their production values are immensely better than this. Yeah. I mean, there's some real dodgy blue screen on Krull, but their actual it, effects are nicer. If this film was made in the 80s and they were forced to use the resources that were available to them then, yeah. I actually think it would have been a better film to look at because yeah. they, they would have, one, been limited in what they could do, which means some of the more outlandish stuff that they do very poorly in this film, they wouldn't have been able to even entertain the idea of doing it at the time. Their focus would have been more limited and what they did use would have had more attention in a more practical sense, I guess. Yeah. So I think if this film, as it is, was made in the 80s, it would have at least been a better film to look at. Although when we go into the filmmaking, I think there's a lot of odd choices they make with the special effects in terms of what they decide to spend the money on yes. versus what they didn't bother with at all. And mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of discrepancy between what's in the film and what should be in the film. Yeah. Because most of the film shouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get the feeling that Courtney Solomon had seen The Phantom Menace and thought, wow, look what you can do with CGI. We're going to do everything in CGI in this version. Oh, the CGI's are fabulous. <laughs> We just watched a video on Courtney Solomon. He's very, very camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah, incredibly yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> Endearingly so. So, yeah, it was director Courtney Solomon's first film, and he had actually, like you say, he had acquired the rights 10 years prior. Yeah. But he didn't actually want to direct this film, did he? No, no, he bought it because he was a fan. Yeah. And was always intending to be a producer. More like, a, I imagine more like a consultant or something like that. Yes. And yeah, that's fine. That's perfectly honourable. But he was trying to get proper filmmakers involved in the film. Mm -hmm. But the company that held the rights to Dungeons & Dragons at the time, which uh, was a company called TSR, they were more interested in using the film just a marketing exercise, basically. So they weren't interested in putting in the money for a proper filmmaker to get involved with it. And one of the filmmakers that was actually touted as being one of Courtney Solomon's selection mm. was Francis Ford Coppola. There were a lot of other names banded about as well. I read this morning that uh, James Cameron was another one wow. and uh, Rennie Harlan yeah. as well, which I think would have yeah. been a more appropriate fit maybe, yeah. especially at this time. But yeah, they were rejecting any of his suggestions less right and centre and weren't even pursuing them because they really just wanted a cheap advert. Very yeah. much like a Power Rangers thing where the TV show is designed to sell the toys. Oh, very much like the Star Wars prequels. But... um (laughs) That comparison becomes more apt. Yeah, it does. It does. But they just really wanted a toy advert 
Although, looking at the film, I don't know what they would have sold. <laughs> no, I was thinking that, considering that that seems to be the whole motivation behind making the film and making it the way that they did, there is actually, curiously, very little in the way of creature effects and creature designs that are really memorable. I don't know what toys that they could actually base on any of these characters or creatures. Yeah, you could get, like, Jeremy Irons in vamp mode action figure. <laughs> yeah. And you could, get what, you could get that thing with Bruce Payne where those little things on the side, like, whiz around <laughs> something like yeah. that yeah his ears just spin <laughs> rub his ears they go from normal to red <laughs> you've got your own itchy balm lipstick to yeah put, they, to they, put can, on his they lips. can market some lipstick yeah. bruce Payne lipstick <laughs> uh they, oh, they could have marketed that boob armor as well oh that's another thing there's, there's boob armor in this yeah. oh but there is boob armor yeah yeah the most useless armor that was ever created really. why does it keep coming up though i have no idea like, even the new reboot of power rangers there's boob armor yeah when there never was boob armor before utterly useless and it's been really controversial when it, obviously they've shown all these images from the new power rangers film yeah and uh, i'm not a massive power rangers fan anyway i always thought it was a bit shit but it's, it's curious talking about power rangers just before we continue that they're actually um taking this thing from our childhood so it's really this film is going to be aimed at like 13 year olds yeah, 12 yeah. 13 year olds and they're still like hyper sexualizing these characters yeah by adding things like boob armor and heels and stuff and it's like you know, there's something slightly gross about it but yeah. at the same time i guess if there's something that's gonna appeal to 13 year old boys it's boobs yeah although in fact power rangers is another good comparison to make when talking about this film because a lot of the effects in this film they do look like uh, the whole film looks like a tv movie it does yeah you know some of the mirror effects it does feel like mm-hmm. some of those things are very power rangers it, I- and the cinematography is TV curiously flat and uninteresting in yeah. a very TV movie-esque way. It almost feels like Xena Warrior Princess in a way. Yeah. Uh, this is not a slight at Xena Warrior Princess because that show worked on a fraction of the budget oh, and of a fraction what of the this time film as well. had. Yeah, exactly. But this is a really puzzling thing because obviously all these directors were rejected. Yep. And they just wanted basically a toy advert or I don't even know what they really wanted. They just didn't want anything like a proper film anyway, which just yeah. sounds like madness, really, because the whole idea, if you wanted a perfect marketing exercise, make a good film. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's is a no-brainer. The make a good is- film that, say, people who are not invested or even connected with the game can watch and go oh that was pretty good i might have a look at that yeah it's almost like the quality of it is a non-entity yeah it's, it's not even entered the picture it's not yeah. even entered the mind of the people making the film it's more so let's let's just get something out there as an advert it's just going to sell some stuff yeah but again we talked about this before but good products because this film is a product because mm. it's designed to sell things but even good products good quality films they will sell more if they're of a better quality. Mm. If this film was good, they would sell more for a longer period of time because, as we've talked about, a lot of the time, good things don't go away. Good things that find an audience don't go away, yeah. and they will continue to help sell whatever it is that you want, whereas bad products disappear, mm. and very quickly. And, I mean, that's why we're covering it on this podcast. That's why we're currently doing a Dungeons & Dragons The Movie episode yeah, because yeah. this was a bad film that yeah. disappeared. So it couldn't have sold much for very long. No, because a good obviously a really good very recent example of a product film which is very obviously a product film that's come good yeah is basically all the new star wars stuff yeah definitely coming out yeah i'm not the biggest bob Iger fan who's the guy who's the ceo of disney at the moment and he does refer to all of his film properties as products yeah which is really bad even so he's quite smart at getting the right people involved and yeah getting those people to take the whole thing seriously yeah that seems to be coming good 
and hopefully will continue to well, be. Well, it's because even though he's referring to a product and he knows what the end game for him is to sell merchandise, because as we know, merchandise for these type of films always makes more money than the actual films themselves. Mm. That's the same for Marvel as well. Yeah. But at least he is invested in creating the best possible product he yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. The best possible advert for these merchandise. Yeah. And I guess even so that... I mean, talking about Star Wars for a second, there are characters that were referred to in the lead up to the film that didn't actually make the cut. Mm. If he really wanted to just sell merchandise straight off, he would have made sure that those characters were in the film, even if it was a detriment to the final quality of it. The fact that he's allowed J.J. Abrams to take them out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing, though. He wasn't stupid with it. He, yeah. Even if he himself wasn't invested in the property and just viewed it as a product, he was smart enough to get people who did love it yeah. to actually make the films. So it was almost like yes it is a product but just run with this and do what you love yeah and it will be good for everybody yeah sort and, I, of thing. and i guess with dungeons and dragons the movie the opposite of that has yeah. happened tsr are really not interested in getting the right people all and that's why they've turned mm. down so many of courtney solomon's suggestions and yes yeah, so throughout the development process of this there was a script written which ended up being pretty much the final shooting script which was this wishy-washy version of the film But then the ownership of Dungeons & Dragons, the game, was bought by another company called Wizards of the West Coast. Yes. And that's where it it resides now, but I think they've been bought out by Hasbro, so it's a Hasbro product now, I think. But I'm not sure what other wrangles went on there, because it seemed like another script was written, a much better script that had more tie-ins to the actual game. And this is the other thing that makes me puzzled. If they wanted an advert for the game, why aren't there more references to the game in the film? Because it's just through reading it. I mean, I'm not familiar with the game at all, but it looks like there are a lot of things in the game that just aren't referenced at all in the film. There's very little from the game that's in the film at all. Yeah, and from what I've actually read and seen from other critics and other websites that have done write-ups of this film, whenever they do actually reference the board game, it's Mm. shoehorned in. Yeah. And it's a yeah. detriment to the film. It's almost yeah. like there's no place for it and it's just been really crowbarred in wherever they could get it. Even just down to the fact that the world that this film takes place in is not an actual Dungeons & Dragons realm. It's yeah. There's lots of realms in Dungeons & Dragons and this is not one of them. Yeah. And that's one of the things that in the, the new film that they're going to be making, that's one of the first things they've said that it's going to be set in, uh, I think, the Forgotten Realm. Oh, right. And that is actually an actual real Dungeons & Dragons place. So even that, Shows that they're going in some sort of right direction. Which already makes it a better representation of the board game. Yeah, because there's a lot of really quite famous things that I didn't even realise came from this game. Because obviously you've got the gelatinous cube, which I always get from Wayne's World. Like, (laughs) gelatinous cube each village. I never realised that was a dig at Dungeons & Dragons. But yeah, that's the thing. And it's like, I was reading an article this morning going on. Obviously, yeah, there's quite a lot of things in Dungeons and Dragons and in Warcraft and stuff as well and all, a lot of these other sort of role-playing games and immersive games that are derived from fantasy that yeah a lot of them are derivative from other things yeah. obviously mainly Lord of the Rings but there's quite a lot of things in there that are completely different and very unique to that game and one of them is obviously the gelatinous cube and there's another one where there's like a land shark like an armored land shark oh, so there's some really crazy there's some really yeah. really crazy stuff in it and the fact that why is none of this stuff in the film this is all the stuff that can really differentiate this property from anything else and they just fall back on the same shit well i think that's something that i will actually say kindly of warcraft of what we've seen of it so far again at the time of recording warcraft is still a couple of weeks from being released so yeah we've not 
actually seen the final product, but judging from the trailers, at least they seem to be embracing the wackier and more bizarre elements of the yeah. game. And it seems to include a lot of magic, and the orcs are incredibly different. Uh, but going back to Dungeons and Dragons, so Courtney Solomon, this was his first directing gig, and he did end up taking it when um, all of his suggestions for directors fell through, really. Yeah, and we were talking about there was this other script. And for some reason, this wasn't used. And it's never really been made clear why he was forced to use this earlier script. But it was forced on him. It was almost like, you do this with mm-hmm. this script or we're not making it at all. I imagine it just may have come down to it being a cheaper script. Yeah. A less ambitious story. I think it would have been one of those things where they had to make it now yeah. or lose the rights for it, I think. Yeah, because th- there are clauses in contracts. Like, we saw the Daredevil property revert back to marvel for example that originally yeah. was owned by fox because fox just simply couldn't make another daredevil film they tried they failed and so the rights reverted back to yeah. marvel so this could be another case as well where the rights for dungeons and dragons would revert straight yeah. back to i mean the best example for it is actually the roger corman fantastic four film and the new fantastic four film really yeah, exactly yeah that, that's yeah. purely an example i mean both those fantastic four films and maybe even the tim story version as well yeah <laughs> just yeah. examples of the holding on to those rights for whatever reason even though they don't seem to hold any worth in that property at all yeah so much so that in fact they're still talking about making another fantastic four film even though the last one failed so spectacularly they're still talking about making a sequel with that same cast because they know that they have to because in eight years time the rights are going to revert back so they've still got to make another film even though it didn't make them much money or any money God, at the time we live in. It's puzzling that, really, because it, it would have lost them money. Yes. Why are they holding on to rights to something that loses them money? I think it's because they thought that the film lost them money not because of the property, but because of the quality of the film. So if they make something that's actually better, maybe it'll make money. I think also just like... Um as well, the reviews that X-Men Apocalypse has been getting has been really highlighting maybe some of the deficiencies of Simon Kimberg as well. Yeah. Because I noticed that X-Men Days of Future Past is written by him, but from a story by Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughan. Yes. But obviously Apocalypse is entirely by Simon Kimberg, and it's like, mm, is this guy really that good yes because it's got pretty much the exact same cast and crew as the last film the last Mm. film was by the sounds of it infinitely better Mm. so what's changed since and it seems to be in the writing that's where the book's been dropped but uh, yeah in the writing in this one jesus christ like (laughs) this script if i was forced to make a film with this script i would have just walked away yes because it is literally like it's been written by a 13 or 14 year old who's yeah. writing a piece of little fan fiction. Like, I really like Dungeons & Dragons. I'm writing a Dungeons & Dragons short story for my school project. Mm-hmm. It's like something I would have written at age 12. We talk about as well, like, Roger Corman's Fantastic Four film, which was made for a pittance just to keep hold of the rights. If they were going to make this film to keep yeah. hold of the rights, why did they still pump $45 million into the making of it? Yeah, and where did this money come from? <laughs> yeah, I'm just really puzzled. <laughs> I imagine a mafia. Yeah. I imagine it was some money laundering scheme. Yeah. But yeah, another couple of tidbits I have on the making of this film is that Marlon Wayne stars in this film, but for a very short time as well. It's clear that his time on the set was limited yeah. because he was currently filming the infinitely better Requiem for a Dream <laughs> yeah. at the same time. <laughs> so he only weird. had two weeks for Dungeons and Dragons. Wow. 
wasn't this just in his like downtime as well? It was like right in the middle of filming. Yeah. He was doing Requiem for a Dream and they must have had two weeks worth of downtime for scenes where he wasn't in and then decided to do this film in the middle and then come back to <laughs> Requiem for a Dream. Like, no wonder he's so hyper. But could you imagine as well, he's going to off to do a film, like the most devastating film about drug use that's ever been made. Yeah. And then in his downtime, <laughs> he's coming to the Dungeons and Dragons set to kind of like scream and jump about the set and stuff and yeah. destroy things. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he just used this film as playtime yeah pretty much yeah it just against to to what he's out, doing yeah. anyway because yeah, he just yeah. feels like he's pissing around as insufferable as his character is and boy is he insufferable yeah it does seem like he's having some fun at least yeah so is it do we have anything else on the making of this film or are we winding to a close the only other fact is that jeremy irons did this film to pay for a castle that he just bought <laughs> how typically english yeah very much the similar to Michael Caine doing yeah, Doors 4 to pay to, for his house. To pay for his house, yeah. yeah. And I remember him talking about another film that he did then to pay for his mum's house. Yeah. I can't remember what that was, but it was a similarly awful film. The Swarm or something like that, I think it was, actually. Yeah, I think it was his mum wanted a bungalow. Yeah, so he, he did The Swarm. <laughs> Which yeah. is another film that we most certainly should cover on this podcast. If there's an audience out there that wants us to cover The Swarm, please do get in touch, because that is a film we are raring yeah, to go on. I'm pretty sure he did that because his mum wanted a house, and then did Beyond the Persuading Adventure because she wanted an extension or something like that. It was one of those <laughs> jobbies where he just did it just because somebody wanted a house building or yeah. a house bought. And yeah, and it seems like a lot of the actors here have done the same thing. Yeah. Where... I tell you what, the other thing this reminded me of was the UA Bowl in the name of the king yeah i was gonna mention that a lot and obviously jason statham as well it this film looks like a film that could have been made by ua ball yeah it's got that feeling about it that they've just simply caught all these actors between jobs yeah so and that's what uve ball used to do because he knew if he got these actors he could film them quickly Mm. and then clutter the film up with some inconsequential shit yeah so he limited his time to what these actors could do but gave them top billing and this has that feeling about it because jeremy irons although he is prominently featured on the poster and in in the billing he's actually in the film very little yeah he is just much bigger than this film the whole film feels so disconnected yeah there's so many scenes that feel so disconnected from each other because they've had to film with these people yeah all together and then these people all together but they've not really met that many times because of the scheduling so there's things where we we jump from location to location that look completely different have completely completely different actors in yeah and uh yeah they only really join up at the end where they're all working on one set Mm -hmm. there's no other scene where they're actually interacting other than on this one set where they've probably filmed for like two days (laughs) yeah no that is correct yeah so now that we've set the scene and all our characters are ready to play it's time for andy and i to roll the dice on dungeons and dragons so andy what did you think of solomon kane's film oh we rolled one we had to go back three places (laughs) we're now in debtor's jail (laughs) We're now in movie we're, jail. We're in movie jail. We're in yeah. movie jail. We're in movie There's no hell. way out, yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the film? Like a nice little brief overview before we actually well, start to actually tear it I, to shreds. I think I stated before when I watched this film rather sleepily this morning and even like 18, 20 minutes in, I just wanted it to stop. I, I didn't want to go any further because yeah. it was so mind-numbingly awful <laughs> and it didn't get any better. I mean, there were a couple of... It was like it was overcast and there were brief glimmers of sunshine coming through yeah. and then they it went overcast again. I think really the only saving graces were a couple of the cameos in this film. Basically all the British actors that were in this film came and saved the day yeah. at certain times. 
because they knew what they were in and uh, they were just sort of enjoying themselves. Whereas everyone else seemed to be taking it a lot more seriously mm-hmm. and uh, all the worse for it. I'd say hands down, this is probably one of the worst films I've ever seen and definitely one of the worst films ever made for 45 million anyway. I, I'd certainly agree with you on both counts, but I think I had a much better experience than you did because although the film is god-awful and boy is it, I actually felt it was a lot of fun, but for the entirely wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, I watched it with my wife and uh, she enjoyed it just as much. We had a film. I, mean, I think the other thing is I watched this on my own, which I don't think anybody should really do. I think if you're going to watch this film, get some beers in, watch it with a large group of friends, yeah. have some fun with it, because it is definitely one of those films that you can have a lot of fun with, but by God, don't watch it on your own in the morning. Jesus yeah. Christ. It was like, <laughs> just knowing that I had to get through it for this podcast, it was just one of the most painful experiences I've had in quite a long time in film, because I had nothing to go on. This is the first time I've ever seen this film, was you kind of knew yeah, it was I, going to be, I like, what, what it was going to be like. Yeah. So you can kind of come back to it going, ah, ha, ha. Because even just watching it through a little bit again, I kind of enjoyed it a little bit more. But just going through first time going, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> yeah, this can't possibly get worse. <sighs> oh, no, it has. Yeah, Because even at the time when it came out and started and get the bad reviews, I kind of thought, even just from some of the publicity stills and obviously the poster, which is completely unrepresentative of the actual film, yeah. it makes it look like it's a much more competent film yeah. than it actually is. Because this really is like a B-movie disguised as an A-list movie. Yeah, it is. Most certainly. It might not yeah. even be a B-movie. It might even be a C-movie disguised yeah, as a, an again, A-list again, movie. the most accurate thing that we can actually say about this film and the way that it looks and the way that it's been made is it does look like a made-for-TV movie. And I'd actually say there are made-for-TV movies of similar ambitions that have been made to look better now. oh yeah it looks like an incompetently made tv movie yeah i mean it is very very poor production values wise oh most certainly i guess that's part of the fun though for me yeah it is a very poor film and that's exactly where i'm mining it from but the my thing enjoyment. is like the thing that re- really puzzles me i just don't know where the money's gone no and imagine it's gone on the actors yeah but another comparison to me as well, it, it reminded me a lot, and this is going back to the canon thing we were talking about before, but it did remind me quite a lot of Superman 4. Yes. Just in terms of its incompetencies, because this was clearly made by someone who just flying by the seat of the pants and didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah. And talking about where that money went, I think one of the things I do have to mention is that this film had a whopping 18 producers involved in yeah. the making of it. Yeah. The two that are of note, really, are just Joel Silver. Yeah. Who I... Um, Think came on as a producer once New Line Cinema bought the film. Yeah. And the director himself, Courtney Solomon. All of the rest of them were names that I wasn't really particularly no. familiar with. So <laughs> if you want an idea of where that money is going, just split 45 million between 18 people and there's your answer. Well, obviously, some of it's going on Jeremy Irons' castle. Oh, of course. Yeah. Which I don't know why it's not in the film. Castles can't be cheap. Why isn't Jeremy Irons' castle not in the film? That'd be amazing. Yeah, it would have made for a much better <laughs> look than most of the sets in the film. I tell you what, the interesting thing was, obviously, at the end when the credits roll up this film was entirely made on location which is shocking in to the me. czech republic because one of the things i wanted to actually mention about this film is that none of the locations seem to have any history about them no we never really get down and dirty with any of these locations it's they've somehow made all of these very real locations look like renaissance fair yeah that's what it reminded me you've got this weird juxtaposition of very poorly dressed real locations mixed with very poorly realized cgi green screen extensions like you've got all the stuff in the tower in the city and then you jump back and then you're a very overcast looking 
historical sites somewhere yeah. where they've just put a couple of bits and pieces of dressing here and there. Mm-hmm. And because they're so poorly realised, but because they're so different to each other, they don't mix. Yeah, they really don't. And at the centre of this city as well, it is Mir, is it? You've got this like Disney-type castle as well, yeah. just standing tall. It's, and it, Again, that doesn't mix with any of the locations that they're actually in during the making of the film, because most of them are like, well, European castles. Yeah. And then, like, at the center of it, you've got these fucking giant Disney peaks. Yeah, you've got, we've got this massively tall city that looks like Istanbul on steroids. Yeah, it looks like a cross between Istanbul and Coruscant. Yeah, and then everything else that you see is normal. Like, if you're going on a camping holiday in Wales. Yeah, it does. Like it does, that. yeah. <laughs> it looks like a trip to the Lake District. Yeah. And there was, like, the mixing styles is just one thing or the other. There's no transition points. Yeah. Like, the best one is right at the end of the film, when we get to the victory and they have the speech by Thora Birch which is off screen going we're now all equal we can celebrate cut to a graveyard (laughs) which could have been filmed in sale or somewhere like that they cut to this graveyard and the music is still like swelling victory we're so victorious grave dead people graveyard solemn faces and the best bit is they cheekily try and pass it off as if it's near the same scene yeah by having the cheering going on in the background (laughs) where it's obviously no one's around yeah Yeah, no no those people are just over the trees just through the trees (laughs) there's a huge like just out of frame just out of frame that's a really good example of how incompetent this film is yeah the fact that they couldn't spend the money on this big crowd sequence with everyone celebrating (laughs) so they just decided to use it anyway but just have it over this shot of the graveyard well before we go any further with the filmmaking i think we really need to establish what the story's about and how these characters are realized and i just want to give a brief overview of the story and this comes from the empire review so i have to cite empire for uh, providing this plot summary and the story is in the magical kingdom of izmir a civil war is on the verge of erupting between the young empress and her council of mages headed by dark wizard Prophian. With the balance of power resting upon ownership of a mystical rod, Apprentice Mage Marina teams up with a bumbling pair of thieves to retrieve the artifact and put an end to Prophian's misdeeds. I mean, that is the story, but I'd say that actually makes more sense than the film posits. Yeah. Because it's uh, very muddied about what's actually happening and I mean, there are mentions of an old war between dragons, but you never really get the sense that any of it actually happened. And yet there are dragons in this world, but you never get a sense where they are. They're just either they there just appear or, and or not there. there. Yeah. yeah. The world building in this film is very, very wishy-washy. Well, there is none, really. Yeah, pretty much, I mean, yeah. it's just... It's such a mess, and like, there's literally no story. I mean, you know how it's going to play out within the first ten minutes. And it's because... And there's no twists and turns. Not at all. I mean, we've talked about Lord of the Rings, and it's definitely got an element of Lord of the Rings. I'd say it's aiming, its ambitions are to be Lord of the Rings through way of Star Wars, A New Hope. But actually, it ends up being a renaissance fair through way of Uwe Ball's um, yeah. a Dungeon Siege movie. And I don't even think it gets close <laughs> to the worst Star Wars prequel. It doesn't even oh, end no. up being The Phantom no. Menace, and yet it's still got many connections with that. And a lot of its um, characters actually are just simply... Star Wars characters placed in this mystical universe. And I've just, when I was watching the film, I just did a write up of the character archetypes that this film shares with yeah star wars and and where it overlaps so i'm just going to go through what i actually wrote you feel free to correct me at any point if you feel that you've got the main character ridley who is a cross between luke skywalker and han solo he is the thief with a heart of gold 
And you've got his love interest, who is a mage. Her name is Marina Pretensa. She's and she's like the Princess Leia of yeah. the film. They don't actually get on, but there's supposed to be an affair between them, like brewing kind of yeah. thing, a love yeah. affair. And then you've got the Marlon Wayne's character, who snails. And I wrote that he was the R two D two and C three PO character rolled yeah. into one. But you actually had a better comparison. No, I say he's definitely the Jar Jar. And I think it. you are absolutely correct. Yeah. In that. Um, he does a lot of jumping about the set, screaming and yep. like I guess appealing to young kids in that George Lucas way. Mm-hmm. You've got the dwarf Elwood Gutworthy who doesn't actually say anything, and I he mostly just growls things from time to yep. time. Yep. And he's the Chewbacca of the piece. Yeah. You got Bruce Payne's Damodar, who we've talked about, or Dam- Damodar. Damodar, yeah. Damodar, yeah. And he's the Darth Vader of the film. Yeah. Except he's got glowing red ears and blue lipstick, which again I've said before, it is definitely Itchy Bomb, which is the um, <laughs> lipstick that Joey did an advert for in <laughs> Japan and Friends. <laughs> and that's definitely what it is. He's yeah. wearing Itchy Bomb lipstick. I, I can't believe that they tried to make this character the Darth Vader of the piece, and yet he couldn't look less threatening. No. <laughs> than ever. No. So yeah, he's the Darth Vader. And then you got Jeremy Irons, who's Prothean. He's definitely Palpatine. Yeah. With scenery chewing as well. Mm-hmm. And then you got Thora Birch's Empress Savina, who is the Queen Amidala. Yeah, definitely. And that's it. I mean, they are Oh no, and then you've got Tom Baker as Yoda slash Galadriel. Of course, oh of course. We can't forget Tom Baker, yeah. Oh, and Jabba the Hutt. We've got Richard O'Brien <laughs> yeah. as Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. so it doesn't get more obvious. And the list goes on and on. And all these characters have the exact same desires, the exact same arcs. They are the exact same archetypes as a Star Wars counterpart. Yeah. There's little more to it. But yeah, it's funny talking about all this Star Wars stuff, though, because I never thought I'd actually say this, but this film makes the Star Wars prequels look like masterpieces. (laughs) But the fact that they're obviously, they are to a degree technically competent in some way. There's a lot of things that undermine that technical competency in the Star Wars prequels, but the actual quality of the work is pretty good. Yeah. It's just some of the direction that makes it look shitter than it actually it's still is. still ILM at the end yeah, of the day, yeah. and they still do a great job it's of what It's ILM dealing with. with somebody who doesn't really know how to deal with all this stuff. Or what they really want. And this is something where CGI companies not really knowing what they're doing around somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing. So yeah. the, there's two incompetents here. Yeah. Whereas with the prequels, there's only one incompetent. There's no direction on either part. <laughs> like, and the other thing as well, the dialogue in The Phantom Menace and, and the prequels feels like Shakespearean now compared to this. <laughs> this is probably some of the worst dialogue I've ever heard in a mainstream film. I have to repeat my favourite line in this film, which is from Bruce Payne's Damodar. Yeah. <laughs> when he approaches Marlon Wayne's character, Snails, yeah. they have a one-on-one fight that yep. eventually ends in Snails' death. But <laughs> when Damodar's trying to smack-talk Snails, he approaches him and says, Ah, it's just like a thief. Always stealing things that don't belong to you. I was like, that that's literally the dictionary definition of thief. <laughs> that's that's not smack talk at all. <laughs> he kind of like walks into the room and gone, ah, Webster's defines thieves as always stealing things that don't belong to them. Oh, I think my other favourite line of dialogue is uh, Oh look, I've cut her. What a shame. <laughs> Which is repeated later on when uh thingy cuts him. Yeah, it's like that's supposed to be the real big air punch moment. Like, yeah! Fuck yeah! <laughs> <laughs> he said that thing again yeah <laughs> that very memorable thing i definitely say this is the number one placeholder dialogue the movie yeah movie because there's so many things where it's almost like when you when you read a screenwriting book and they tell you the beats that have to go in in the story but if you put those beats in dialogue form yeah. in the story itself 
It's when you have like the uh, Marina character, the, one of the first lines of dialogue, she says, I always felt I was meant for something more than this. That yeah. kind of thing. It feels like, like it was almost something like out, like out of a Disney song. Yeah, like she's yeah. about it's, to burst into song. It's almost like that's actually part of her like character description when they've had to yeah. write like if they ever did actually write a treatment. Yeah. Like next to her character it says she's always felt like she was more than this. You know, and it's actually have the character come out and say that. It's just like, yeah, we get it. And there's other things as well, like when Thora Birch and that old man are talking and that's completely just like exposition, yeah. like central as if someone's just written it out. Like this is what we are mean to do. Yeah. And we need to go and get this in order to defeat this thing. And then they even cheat by having that little weird CGI creature eavesdropping. We've never seen this creature before. It just comes at the end of the scene. And then we cut straight back to Jeremy Irons going, ah, now I know the plot. <laughs> like, there's no work done at all. It's no. like, yep, I know what's going on. I mean, like we are saying, this, this is a story with zero twists and turns. In fact, the only twist in the whole film is the fact that Marlon Wayans gets killed, which is not a surprise anyway, seeing as he's disappeared from most of the film anyway. And this is just another way of getting him out of the way. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, even at the end of the film, we're led to believe that he's actually being brought back from the dead. I mean, yeah. there's this moment where they're at the grave and the elf character says that she's going to take them to where he is and blah, 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 blah. They couldn't even get him back yeah. for that. They still had to end the film just talking about Marlon Wayne's character. Superman style, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the way that they keep on referring back to this Marlon Wayne's character yeah. is as if, like, you know, he's the centerpiece of the film. What's that quote from the Phantom Menace making of that they keep on talking about? If this were Jar Jar's the key to this. Yeah. Jar Jar's the, it's like Marlon he's a funnier character yeah. than we've had before. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about with Marlon Wayne's. He's the key to this film. Why do they keep on referring to him in this way? Like, he has all this importance. I don't care that he's dead. He's dead. Oh. Uh. Because he's the guy with the black magic. That's going on. He's the... Is that because he's black? No, there's actually a line in the no, film where he goes, yeah, there's a bit of black magic. And I was like, ew. I know, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, this film was heavily criticised on release for basically taking black characters and black actors back to the 1930s. Oh, definitely. <laughs> in a way, it relates even more to The Phantom Menace considering Jar Jar Binks was yeah. heavily criticised for exactly the same reason. And yeah, and it does make such a big deal of his death as well. Like You have that whole spiralling camera move when he's lying on the ground at the, like, yeah, when he's been yeah. killed and it's just like is this the same character we've all been watching because he's been <laughs> yeah. a complete annoying twat all he's the done for most of the time is just bounce off the walls screaming and these guys are definitely the worst thieves in the whole world how did he get to be a thief every time he's anywhere he screams yeah. he knocks things over he's so clumsy how, how's he not just been executed <laughs> like even when he's in that carpet thing that sort of goes into that mush thing you know when he's in the yeah. damadars it's almost like oh no I dropped I fell in the poodle <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it is it's like that i but, actually think that was probably the only special effect in the film i actually enjoyed was when he stood on the rug that was in fact yeah. quicksand do you know the other thing that it reminded me of and i think it's just because of the earlier scenes with the castles and going into the magic school he reminded me a little bit of eddie murphy's donkey in track oh he's definitely got that about him yeah he's like a far less endearing version of donkey <laughs> but with no good lines and a lot more screaming now, talking about the story as well, just going back to what you were saying before, I do feel like there are um, huge holes in this story in terms of what we are shown and what's communicated to us. Even from a filmmaking point of view, and just in terms of who they follow, yeah. whose story they follow. For example, there is a part in the film where our main characters have kind of assembled at this point. You've got Marlon Wayne, Snails, Ridley, Marina, and this dwarf and Chewbacca-like character who's more, like, I guess, Gimli. Yeah. He's like the Gimli of the film. Um, I he's, don't know where he came from. He's basically Gimli light. Yeah, yeah. They just picked him out of a rubbish dump for some reason. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's no... I don't know why he's there. Is he a dwarf? He is a dwarf, yeah. Because he in his rubbish dump, there's a massive sign that it seems that he's written that says, No dwarfs allowed. Yeah. So why is he there? Isn't that like the entrance to the sewer? Yeah, it is. It says yeah. no dwarves allowed. That whole part of the film, I've just no idea what's going on. No, no. To be honest, the whole film is like <laughs> yeah, that. But you could, like, because you're going to say, I was going to say, there's a story. Yeah. To this film, it's more like just scenes that happen. But even in just in terms of the scenes that happen and what they show us, they seem to yeah. show us the wrong scene. Yeah. Like, so these characters are in this pub. They have a magic map in front of them. One of them manages to say some kind of magic spell that his dad used to say. It's like <laughs> one of those real kind of ex machina moments where yeah. some random piece of information that us, the audience, have never been privy to. My dad used to be really good at this. Yeah, and he used to say this thing, and then that was the thing that unlocks the yeah. map. We are never given that information previously. Anyway, he gets sucked into the map. Then another character says that they get sucked into the map. Surely they're the characters we should be following. They're the ones that are beginning <laughs> an adventure inside this map. Instead, they just stay outside. They follow Marlon Wayans as he tries to chat up some girl at the bar, some elf. Or meanwhile, these characters are meeting some important character that's going to tell them the <laughs> history of the world and what they need to do to continue this quest. They have to relay that back to us once they come back out of the map. Yeah. Like they talk about this adventure that they've just been on. Why didn't we get to see that? And it's not even as if like they were holding information. Yeah. They were just not showing it. Exactly. They just yeah. couldn't be asked to film it. Instead, it's relayed back to us in the most profoundly dull way possible, which is just by having the characters say it to us. Yeah. So we're not being shown, we're just being told. Yeah. Which I guess sums up this film rather well is it's a lot of telling and very little showing yeah especially in terms of the history like i say this film could have really benefited from my lord of the rings-esque intro a prologue where we get an idea of this dragon war that once almost destroyed this entire empire yeah but it just seems to me like the filmmakers i don't think they didn't care i just don't think they were equipped yeah to deal with anything of this magnitude because the thing is with dungeons and dragons and yeah reading a couple of articles on it yeah there's a lot to be mined from this property like there's a lot of ideas because it's one of those things that involves a lot of improvisation and it's one of those things that has evolved over time and there's like tie-in novels there's a lot yeah. of different rule books a lot of different versions of the game uh, there's a lot of fan input as well mm -hmm. and it's amassed into its own little universe I mean, there's no central story like yeah. World of the Rings has. It's just a world. But obviously, with this kind of world, you've either got a lot of freedom or you're going to come up with jack shit. And they came up with jack shit. Yeah. And yeah, it went all that way. So really what they're doing, they're just relying on established fantasy tropes. Because really, it is like... There's so many things in it that are, oh, this is like Lord of the Rings, but on a Poundland budget. Exactly, yeah, um, yeah. Even just like onto that dwarf character, he's very much Gimli like, and just in terms of what his dialogue is, like, yeah. it almost feels like deja vu when you're like, oh, Gimli said that. And I, it's almost like, I don't even know, <laughs> even though like it came a year later, I was like, no, no, because it's like, yeah, Gimli would have said that in the, not in the book. Yeah. But they're just using this here, but they're just like, we'll take this bit and this bit. Yeah, we've got all the dialogue that he's going to say throughout the whole film. There's even lines of him talking about dwarf women and having beards and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, which is directly lifted yeah. from Lord of the Rings. But talking about that character, and particularly the actor that plays him, is it me, or did he look slightly like Christopher Lloyd? A little bit. Well, he's the guy from Pirates of the Caribbean. He, he is, yeah, 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 he is. He's, um, probably the, yeah, he's probably one of the only actors, apart from Jeremy Irons, to do well out of this film. Well... Uh, some of them have gone on to be, I wouldn't say prolific TV actors, but yeah, solid yeah. careers in TV. Yeah. But I, I think don't was, think it was, it was, it was on the, the merits of... Is it the girl that's in um, 
one of the NCIS programs. Yes, she is. Like yeah, that. that's yeah. it. She's been seventy episodes, I think. Yeah, but I don't think um, any of that was off the back of this film. I don't think no. this film led to many jobs. No, no, no. Although, do you know what? The um, the lead actor. When I was watching the film, I was like, I'm sure I've seen him before. Yeah, we like, went through the same thing, but I, I remembered what I'd seen him in. Yeah, the two things. Jimmy Olsen. It's Jimmy Olsen from the New, uh, Adventures, the New Adventures. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Clark and Lois. Oh yeah. But also, I remembered him instantly from a film that I had watched just a couple of days ago, which was Serial Mom, <laughs> which <laughs> is a Kathleen Turner film in which she is. A kind of suburban mom that just loses it and decides to kill everybody that upsets her in any way whatsoever <laughs> and gets away with it entirely. And it's actually uh, one of the first John Waters films I saw, and it was excellent. And he's in that. He gets killed by serial mom. Um, <laughs> uh, he gets set on fire at some rock and roll concert by a band, I think, are called the Camel Toes. Yeah. And they feature massive camel toes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that's what I remembered him from. The last time I saw him, he was getting set on fire by women at a concert called The Camel Toes. Maybe he should have been set on fire in this film. It'd be more exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about the story and the fact there's no twists and turns. There's a whole bit where he's got stabbed in the shoulder by this villain character. What is it? Is it Daramar? Uh, da- Damadar. Amadala. Um <laughs> <laughs> they basically just mixed up the character names, haven't they? Yeah, they have, yeah. But yeah, this Damodar, he's like properly like skewered into him with his sword. Yeah. And then next minute, he's been healed by Tom Baker. It's Who, like there's a no... character we've never met before. Yeah. Or... And it's like just a, a real get-out-of-jail-free card. It is. There's no consequences no. to what's just happened. No, and even the biggest thing that happens in the film that we're led to believe is Marlon Wayne's death, and that's pretty much undone by its end. So there's no consequences to anything any of these characters do, really. Because if you were a normal writer, i.e. someone that could actually write, you would have actually written that into the rest of the film. So if this happens at the end of Act 2, you're going to have this going all the way through to the end because this is something that's physically weakening our character. This is at his lowest point. Yeah. And he's got this thing holding him back. Yeah. Therefore, the odds are stacked that much higher. Yeah, Because he's at a physical disposition to the other characters. But no, they just make him better again yeah instantly within two minutes later yeah Yeah, it's like they they write themselves out of it yeah i am going to talk about the film's qualities for a second (laughs) i know i know we laugh we laugh the film does have i would say a few few qualities one of which is the casting that we will get into later and i guess this kind of overlaps into the casting but of all the moments in the film i actually quite enjoyed Richard O'Brien's oh, Crystal yeah. May section. Yeah. Again, it looks awful just like the rest of the film. There's some terrible CGI as well that's just really not needed. Yeah. But of the whole sections, that's probably the best, and I think it comes down to Richard O'Brien. Definitely. More than anything. He's kind of reprising his Crystal May role, and yeah. the way in which they utilize him is perfect. I'm pretty sure he's just improvising as well. I don't think he's yeah. doing anything that's in the script. I think mm-hmm. they're just gone. This is what we want to happen. Just play this out. Because, uh, yeah, he's really like taking advantage of that i mean i'm i was i'm almost a bit shocked that he didn't perform a song to mumsy in the film <laughs> that know, would have been brilliant that would have been great if they would have had like a mumsy character in yeah. it and it was just some like skeleton that they've got in the corner and some, really like, like yeah, yeah been really self-referential <laughs> i mean that's the thing it's like they kind of got there but 
I feel because they're not equipped for going any further, they didn't mine any more parody out of it. No. If they were going down that route, they should have milked it for all it was worth. I and think it's kind so, of a yeah. little bit half baked, really. They should have gone further with it. Because when I was watching it, I was like, oh shit, he's, this is the crystal maze. Yeah. Like the fact that he has his own maze for no reason. And it's essentially what he gets out of it is a crystal. They even do the bit where they, uh, they have the egg timer. Yeah, they do. The I saw it. Yeah, he smashes the egg timer. There's but, even a moment, though, um, where the maze is set up in this horrible CG shot and yeah. Ridley is the only real element yeah. in the entire shot and it reminded me straight off of Nightmare yeah, the TV definitely. show Nightmare and I was expecting somebody to like be shouting over the wall turn left, five <laughs> steps forward <laughs> <laughs> I mean that, that whole section is a definitely a combination of Crystal Maze and Nightmare it is, I imagine they didn't even try and rope the guy from Nightmare in this film actually oh, that would have been great but, if he would have walked through the door and there would have been those visors on the wall oh, that they have to put on so they can't definitely. see anything you can totally tell that he knows this is a shit film and he's just playing it for all. Especially at the end when he's like, You're not coming in my kingdom! <laughs> in my guild! <laughs> I think this is the perfect time for us. We can't really say much more about the story or the world building or anything because it's so half-baked yeah. anyway. So this is a really good time to actually start talking about the performances. Yeah. Because definitely talking about Richard O'Brien, mm. there are a couple of terrible characters. I mean, they're all terrible characters, <laughs> but there are a couple of terrible terrible characters brought to life by great actors yeah Yeah. and thank god for jeremy irons and thank god for richard o'brien tom baker doesn't really get given much to do but he doesn't shit the bed either yeah i'm glad he's there (laughs) it's a familiar face he's a nice welcoming face to see yeah he doesn't make as much of an impact as the other two but even so it's like oh it's like a warm blanket yeah it is yeah i mean there's there's one thing that i do i think we i'm gonna post on the facebook page and on the twitter page i took a couple of screenshots of the film whilst I was watching it and there's one of Richard O'Brien which perfectly sums up his role in the film it's a huge action sequence <laughs> and the main thing is it's just his expression what yeah. he's actually doing in the middle of this action sequence that speaks volumes to <laughs> what he's thinking about during the making of this film and yeah. how he's treating his performance yeah he is making decisions yeah <laughs> that's, that's he's making acting decisions in and this it's, moment it's just like it's one of those things where it's a bit like a words Wally like what's the odd one out in this sequence <laughs> and if you watch whatever everyone else is doing and then just look at his yeah. face it's just like yeah you know exactly what you're in and that sums up jeremy irons in every single scene that he's in yeah, as well he is, yeah he's doing the exact same thing if you just watch jeremy irons in any scene he's just hamming it up for everything it's worth and he's making crazy noises like in one of them that's like one of his lines at yeah. one point when he's talking to a dragon he just simply looks at it and goes and it's perfect <laughs> And it's one of those things where, like, if it was directed by someone who could direct, it would be like, uh, just tone that down a little bit, Jeremy. But it's <laughs> just, like... Just bring it down a couple of yeah, notches. Just... But it's just like the people involved are just totally oblivious to what he's actually doing, and they're just letting... I'd imagine that all these are first takes as well. Yeah, but could you imagine being in Courtney Solomon's shoes and talking to Oscar winner Jeremy Irons and having anything to say to him other than just, yeah, just, just continue that, that's... That's fine. To be honest, though, it's one of those things where, at the end of the day, I can't solely lay the blame to Courtney oh, Solomon because not. looking at this, this kind of film, someone who's never made a film before making this kind of film, yeah, and obviously being forced to do a script that you don't believe in anyway. I mean, this is an incompetently made film, but it's been made by somebody who didn't want the job of directing this yeah. film. He's been forced into it, so I really can't blame him. And that's what I mean. As a first-time director, can you imagine him? Like, a first-time director who clearly doesn't know what he's doing. I can't imagine him talking to the likes of Jeremy Irons or Richard O'Brien yeah. and having anything of worth or construction 
constructive to say to them yeah other than just continue whatever you're doing yeah it seems like an incredibly daunting task and it's a job that he really shouldn't have had and he knows that yeah Although, having said that, he has gone on to make some pretty poor films since. Yeah, this isn't his only directing job. He's since made An American Haunting, which I don't think it shit the bed, but it was middling at best. Yeah. But then he made Getaway last year, which was one of the worst reviewed films of the year. Yeah. Quite a huge bomb. That's starring Ethan Hawke and Selena Gomez, I think. So, yeah, he hasn't gone on to have a distinguished career in directing, although he has produced a lot of films and a, and a lot of well-received directed DVD films as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those things where, like, just stick to producing. It's kind of weird that Ethan went back to even directing something because it's, yeah. it's obviously something that he's not good at. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's clear as well that it's not where his passions lie either. No. Really. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's, he is involved with this new Dungeons & Dragons because his company's still involved with the rights. Yeah. But it, he is strictly just a producer on mm-hmm. this one because they've not announced a director for it yet. No, they haven't announced a director. Have they? It's um, the same guy that directed Goosebumps. Ah, right, yeah. Um, okay. Which people are saying it seems like a, a nice match. Yeah, so we've got these the uh, these actors. You got yeah, you got Jeremy Irons, who's just larger than life. Yeah, like I say, I've talked about him chewing scenery, but that really doesn't do justice to exactly what he's doing in this film. Hmm. And the final fight scene as well between Ridley and his character Prothean, is it? Yeah, Palpatine. Palpatine. Yeah, he's. But yeah, the final fight between them is just excellent in terms of overacting. There's a lot of um, like grand gestures that he keeps on having to make while he's controlling these red dragons that are doing battle with other dragons. And if somebody can do a supercut of just his reactions during those the, those scenes, yeah, yeah. it would be just excellent. You know what the other thing this reminded me of a little bit, but it was done like 100 million times better, was the television movie adaptation of The Colour of Magic. Oh, yeah. With Tim Curry in the the Wizards Guild. Yes. Just the whole setting of it and maybe just some of the the kind of actors that it's getting in. It's actually a TV movie as well. Well, when I was watching it, my wife actually mentioned that it did have the look of like a BBC version of, like the BBC version of the Chronicles of Narnia. So that's the kind of feel that it gave me. Uh, and again, those shows are working on a fraction of the budget yeah. of what this film had. And I'm pretty sure most of those, like, uh, well, especially the more modern BBC ones, most of them are shot in Eastern Europe. Yeah, as well, which obviously this one is as well. Especially if you compare it, like you know, like Gormenghast and obviously the Robin Hood and the Merlin TV series. Yeah, and yeah. Definitely the Discworld adaptations were definitely filmed in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. It has that kind of feel, but even so, those other ones are like miles better, like a hundred million yes. times yes, better. Yes, they are. Because yeah, they're made by people that actually know what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> because even where those shows fail in terms of not having the budget to fulfil their ambitions, yeah, they are still informed by better writing better characters mm. you know so it's always going to come off better even if they have a fraction of the resources mm. that this film has yeah because you can forgive so much with strong writing but this because there's hardly anything to grab hold of yeah in terms of any quality you're just looking at this thing going that shit that shit yeah and there's literally little scraps of things but they're usually because they're not good but yeah. they're good because this guy knows he's in a shit film and he's just playing it to the yeah, help because, yeah, yeah. you know, this is him just letting off steam and having some fun, really. Yeah, pretty much. And that's something I have to actually commend this film for because we have seen actors before in these kind of shit roles where they come in, they say their lines and they cash their checks. 
Whereas the likes of Richard O'Brien and Jeremy Irons especially, they're having a lot of fun with mm. what must be a job that's an in-between job for them. Yeah. It's so inconsequential. You know, nobody's going to go see it. And yet they are given like crazy over-the-top performances that require a lot of energy and a lot of work, I imagine, but they're still <laughs> having a lot of fun. For example, I think of what Bruce Willis does these days, whereas yeah. he just turns up and directs a DVD films at the yeah. moment for like two days' work. This is so much more than that. Although I think there is one actor in this that is definitely doing the cash the check job, which is Thora Birch. She's definitely oh, doing the cash the check so. job. Incredibly so. I was willing to give it a benefit of the doubt for the first few scenes of it just being, oh, they're trying to do Queen Amidala, nah. who is a very monotonous character to begin with, yeah. and they just got it all wrong. No, it is just a poor performance. Yeah, she doesn't give a shit about any of it yeah and i think wasn't this her next job after american Beauty? pretty much yeah. yeah it's more like i've been in american beauty i'm so i'm so above this <laughs> yeah i mean she is but she, but she get you get the feeling off her that she knows oh, that she's above this definitely whereas with like jeremy irons and richard o'brien they know that they're above this but they're still gonna have fun yeah whereas she doesn't look like she's having any fun at all yeah this needed a, like, Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones in that role. I know that you haven't seen Game of Thrones, but it needed somebody with a little bit of fire in the belly in that character. Yeah. Although it seems to be, like, just even just looking up Thorabert, she looks like she's had some strange relationships, mainly involving her dad. Her dad and she's been is fired off agent things. as well. Yeah, and, and she's been to... fired off things because of things that her dad's done and all sorts of bits and bobs like Yeah, that. her father is also her agent. I mean, I don't really She's not like been to... in anything of note for quite a long time. No, no. I mean, I, we don't really like to always go into these kind of, like, uh, the seedy backgrounds mm. of some people's past because it's not really our place. No. But her father is also her agent and other directors have spoke of having really hard times working yeah. with him because i remember he's an ex-porn star <laughs> and nobody wanted to work with her because it would mean working with this creep yeah and it ended up as it being a real detriment to her career yeah it does feel like this is not something that she's wanted to do yeah it's just like something that someone else has wanted to do but because she's in a position where she's not as old as those actors who've yeah. had long long careers so this is not really going to affect their career that much this may actually dramatically affect her career yeah by being in this film especially just after being in what is basically her breakthrough film yeah and then go doing this shit afterwards it's like you can definitely feel that she just really doesn't want to be there and really doesn't want oh, to do yeah, this. Oh yeah, she's entirely uninterested. Yeah. You know what film it reminded me of just before we start like moving yeah, on yeah. to the filmmaking and all that? It's Starship Troopers without the irony. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of its cast because Paul Verhoeven filled Starship Troopers up with this like 90210 type cast yeah. knowing that that was part of the joke. All these actors thought they were in something that was Shakespearean. The point of it is he ironically fills his cast full of 90210 actors whereas I think this one's full of those type of TV actors yeah. but entirely in an unironic way. Definitely. I mean the other thing we, have, we haven't really mentioned so far is the fact that you've got these two thief characters who are um, our audience in yeah. characters, our audience insert here characters, but they've made no attempt to blend them in to this world. Yeah. They're basically there's two guys off the street from now or back in the 90s. It's almost like Bill and Ted. Oh, that's Bill and Ted Excellent Adventures when they just thrust into medieval times. That's a great example. And it is really like that. That's an issue I have throughout the film is that nothing that we actually see on the screen has a feeling of history about it. No. And they very briefly talk about the past and in the very little world building they do, which is incredibly vague, they talk about things that have happened, but that's never really ever reflected in the architecture, the look, or the people that inhabit this world. In fact, one of the only sections of the film 
where it feels like there's two. There's the Tom Baker section where he's talking about like the elves being connected to the the earth, which is obviously it's very, very Lord the of the Ringsy, uh-huh. but it yeah. still makes it feel like there's some sort of history there. Yeah. And then the other bit is when Damodar is interrogating the Marina character, yeah. and you get that sense of history with Damodar in terms of him serving yeah. the family, just for that little brief moment, and you kind of go, oh, there's more to this. Oh, no, we're going back to this <laughs> sort of like, And it's like... <laughs> Yeah, there's little brief moments, but they just never they never commit to anything. Really, I guess they're your like glimpses of sunshine you were talking about. Yeah, in the, in the yeah. storm that is this film. I mean, this is the other actor to really mention. He's obviously not as famous as these other actors, but he's the other actor that's making the most of his time on yes, screen, which is, is Bruce Payne as Damodar, mm-hmm. who's playing yeah Darth Vader. Really, he's just there really because they've clearly only got Jeremy Irons for a week's worth of work. Yeah. So you've got this Damodar character who really carries most of the weight in terms yeah, of... and screen time. Yeah, and screen time, just in terms of representing the villains of the piece. <laughs> it's just a shame that, like, he is trying. He really is trying. He's hamming it up in the right way, I think, as well. But he's entirely undercut by the makeup yeah. and the dress and the writing and the cinematography and the music yeah, and the everything direction. else, yeah. He's just always, like, his performance is always undercut by that. There's nothing truly threatening about his character. The type of acting that he's doing as well when he's got these, um, like, creatures rummaging about in his head and stuff. I don't even really... know what that is. It just seems to come out of nowhere. I was thinking about it. They don't actually seem to go away. They go back inside his head yeah. and then disappear. They just stay in there. What what the fuck is it with that? Well, there's a bit where his head sort of changes colour again. It does, at the yeah. End, but and his ears finally revert to their normal colour. This is the thing, though. This is another thing where they've they've it's a bad writer's job because you you think that ah Jeremy Irons is so evil that he's lied to him and he's gonna keep him that way forever. Yeah, I thought that was gonna be the point. Changes them back. Yeah, changes them back. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was going to be the point. Like, yeah. Why would he change him back when he's got him where he wants him? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Always. No, change him back. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like this film has been written by someone who's about age 12. Yeah. And this is their fantasy writing project. Yeah, they've read half of The Fellowship and watched Star Wars. Yeah. And decided, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't go much further. No. Do you know, besides all that, my favourite scene of the whole film, apart from all the the bits we've just mentioned, the end of the bit that actually felt a bit like a fantasy movie, like they were actually trying, was the bit where he actually gets the red rod from that skeleton that talks. Yeah, I think that's actually my uh, my favourite part of the film, yeah. just in terms of something actually working. Yeah, it didn't involve CGI. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Because that could have been so poorly rendered in CGI, but they decided to actually make it a real puppet. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, thank God for it, because it works so much better for it. It like, does. There's that horrible thing that's on top of Thora Birch at the end. Oh, yeah, that's... I, I don't actually know what it's doing. Like, Jeremy Irons has this creature attack Thora Birch, and it kind of just jumps on it and, I'm, I'm and sure, growls. I'm sure there's a... I think there's a YouTube video with that where someone has put some porn music over the top of it. <laughs> But going back to that cave that they actually go in, I do like that part where he's talking to the skeleton, but there's a moment when they walk in there and for some reason there's a force field that stops all the other characters going inside. For what reason, I don't know because there's no traps inside this cave anyway or anything like that. Oh, the actors weren't available on that day. I guess so. I guess it would mean, yeah. It would mean they'd have to have another day with these characters. But Marina says to him, be careful. And he turns around and very cockily says something like, oh yeah, I will. And then just walks off. Wouldn't that be like the perfect moment for him to like just fall down a trap or something like that? Yeah. Like to really just hammer home a nice comedy beat or something or to really kind of um, 
show that he's completely out of his depth in some way. I was like, yeah, it, it's almost this, set up to be a comedy beat, and then they've missed it. If this film has been directed by Spielberg or Joe Dante, then yeah, definitely, but not directed by this guy. <laughs> The film's full of moments like that where they just miss their cue. Yeah. And then, like, 30 seconds later, he does fall down a hole in the floor, but it's, like, out of sight of the rest of the characters. Yeah. I guess this film, all the way through, is just miscued scenes, miscued action beats, miscued comedy beats from beginning to end. There's a real lack of stakes or threat. I mean, the perfect example of that is the maze sequence. Yeah. There's nothing to make you feel anything. No. You know he's going to... He gets through it very, very easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I say, as a direct comparison, like the other night I watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and obviously there's a similar sequence in that where he has to go for all the challenges to get to the Grail. Yeah. But that is so well done, and you're so invested in the characters at that time that it's so compelling, and you want you want Indy to succeed, but they don't make it easy for him either. Whereas with this, it's like, he's a douchebag, and he gets through it, so what the fuck? I don't care. Yeah. The only thing you're interested in is Richard O'Brien. You're wanting to get out of the maze and just get back to Richard O'Brien mm. at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because like say, I was saying earlier that I think that's actually one of the best scenes in the film as well, but it's not because of what's happening in the maze. It's simply because of Richard O'Brien gets to reprise his yeah. Crystal Maze character, really. Yeah. That's that's what I like about <laughs> it. Whereas you could have just watched Crystal Maze on Challenge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And there's no sense of scale as well with the maze, because no. talking about Last Crusade, you get a sense that this is taking place in a rather large environment as well, like for instance when he throws the sand out over the pit this feels like it's in someone's basement in dungeons of dragons this film has a lot of weird juxtapositions you've got all these things where you've got poorly rendered cgi extensions or cgi sets but they're really big even though they're really poorly rendered but then when you actually get to the set it's either just inside a church somewhere inside a hall somewhere or Mm. this it's inside a very small set somewhere yeah well, the Senate meeting clearly takes place inside a theatre. Yeah. Inside an opera theatre. Yeah. With all of the uh, politicians just sitting in the booth. Yeah. That's all they've done to disguise this environment is yeah. cover up the stage, take the seats out, and that's it. Yeah. And there's another one where, yeah, it's, there's a lot of spiralling around CGI buildings in this. Yeah, there film. is, yeah. And then it cuts to a church. Yeah, it does. I mean, that's the feeling I get as well, that none of this meshes together. Yeah. Because all of the CGI buildings look so kind of like, not polished in a way that you would want, but like textureless, I guess. Yeah. They look so smooth and new. Whereas anytime we actually see anything real, you suddenly go, what? This isn't here, surely. You know, nothing gels. I mean, as well, we need to talk about the the cinematographer as well. It's like, uh, because the the way that this film looks cheap, this film looks really cheap and not just CGI stuff, but the way it looks during location footage (laughs) as well. On location, it looks cheap. And this is from a cinematographer that, although he's not got the best career in the world, he's worked with some of the greats. I'm not sure what's happened with this guy, right? Because Uh, Douglas Milsom it is. This is a guy that's had possibly one of the best starts in a career you could possibly want. Yeah. This is a guy that was Kubrick's focus puller and then became Kubrick's lighting cameraman. Yeah. And he's worked on films like Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, you know, yeah. the, the very difficult... He was known as a, a very ace focus puller and was responsible for a lot of the technical stuff in Barry Lyndon and then became the lighting cameraman on Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. He's not actually the DAP because I don't think they have DAPs on Kubrick films at that time because Kubrick's your DAP really. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. He's the lighting cameraman, so he's basically the second in command in terms of the photography. Yeah, yeah, then he's done films like Robin Hood, Prince of Fees, but then he was still consulted for when they did Eyes Wide Shut. 
So he's obviously someone of considerable skill. Yeah. But and somebody who Stanley Kubrick regarded highly. Yeah, and trusted. Yeah. Uh, and trusted and valued his opinion. He's one of the greatest filmmakers that ever yeah. lived. So obviously this guy's got to be of some worth. And then if you look at his filmography, it's filled with things like Highlander Endgame and yeah. Legionnaire. Yeah. And I'm just like, the two don't go together. I'm just looking at what he's done and then what he's done actually as a director of photography. And I'm just like... It doesn't marry it up. It doesn't marry up. It's filled no. like a completely different person. No. I mean, although Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves looks infinitely better than this film, it also shares a few of the faults. And not all of it is down to him as a cinematographer. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, a lot of sets look like very Renaissance fair. That's the thing that I keep going back to. Because yeah. that's what it reminds me of. But it's also quite flat as well. Mm. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's not as flat as this. Because it just feels like such a massive downward spiral. It is. It is, yeah. Going from those films to stuff like this. I mean, obviously, it's definitely going to be uh, the fault of the director or inexperience of the director. But the scenes where the staging's so wrong. But it's one mm-hmm. of those things where you would have expected the DAP to have stepped in and gone, no, we can do it this way. And he just hasn't done Yeah, yeah. Like, he's clearly worked with better people. Has he not picked up anything in terms of directing from Kubrick? Like, I think the one, well, obviously there's two really bad examples in this film. The first one is the whole death of the Marlon Wayans character, where that's set and where that's staged and how that's shot yeah. is one of the flattest things I've ever seen. There's zero atmosphere. No. Even though it's shot on film, it just looks so... Like, it, you may as well have been shot on video. Yeah. but uh, And then, obviously, the other one, which is a real baddie, is obviously all the stuff at the end on top of the tower yeah. where the photograph elements don't mesh with anything that's going on in the background. I mean, they're, they're lit completely wrong. Yeah. It may be one of those things where they didn't know what kind of thing they wanted mm-hmm. in the background at, yeah. and they had to just light it as is, and then they filled it in later, which and is probably what happened. And the way that they as well over the top Oh, I mean, I took, a, I took some nice screenshots of all the uh, the composite work on that. I mean, yeah. there's some bits where even the, the actual real set is digitally grainy because the composite's not right. Yeah. Things are just moving around. Yeah, and, we'll include a couple of photos, a couple of screen grabs from yeah. the sequence sequences on our facebook page and on our twitter account so, so do bad. have a look it's so bad and it's like this is a film that was made in the year 2000 and preceded all the rings by 12 months yeah and you know it came out a year after the matrix yeah it did yeah there's no excuse and i'm pretty sure the matrix had a similar budget to this yeah as well and we've talked about the cgi being god awful and boy is it but one thing I haven't mentioned as well is that these dragons, they're so poorly realized and there's 20 or 30 of them on shot at the same time at one point and they're clearly just all the same model yeah. uh, with one version of them slightly recolored. But even from a design level, they're really poorly designed caricatures of dragons really. Yeah, because you meant to have the red dragons and the gold dragons, but everything's so murky that you yeah. can't really tell the difference between one or the other. And it's funny as well, for a film that's called Dungeons and Dragons, you've got one dragon at the start who's in it for about all of like 30 seconds yeah and then the dragons don't appear again for another 83 minutes mm-hmm. of, of a 95 minute film and they yeah, yeah they just appear out of nowhere and then and they disappear again at the end we don't ever get to know any of the dragons as nope. characters either because it wouldn't have been this better if no they dragon actually, heart no it isn't a dragon heart not all but wouldn't it have been better if we had like a hero dragon of the lot so we could actually connect with one of them when the battle begins like maybe the queen whatever name queen savannah or whatever her name mm. was why doesn't she have a dragon like in a courtyard oh, yeah. that is her own personal pet that she rides into battle herself because she does ride one into battle later on and, uh, and, and kind of right. she's just like she's just sat on something yeah it, like she's sat on like a hobby horse yeah exactly and they've just filmed her 
but in some car park. There's not even that. They've not even done that basic level no. of work. And the fact is, that's all there in the source material as well, because I know that in the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game that the dragons possess quite high levels of intelligence, because I know in the in the role-playing that things are measured by different things, and one of them is intelligence. I know the dragons are yeah. very, very high, and they have their own culture and everything, and none of that's played on it. They're just there to be your monster. Yeah. Uh, monster monster insert, insert, yeah. monster monster <laughs> insert monster here um, and like I said there's there's a lot more dungeons in this film than dragons because dungeons are cheaper exactly no, that's, there's that's a lot exactly of dungeons right, I mean yeah. if you want a film that's got a lot of dungeons this is your film yeah uh, there's a lot of them uh, they probably raided every single dungeon that's in the <laughs> Czech Republic so dungeons and dungeons with Actually, dragons. do you know what this film also reminded me of? Uh, and again, it was a film that was still 100 million times better, but they had not even anywhere near as much money. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, in the film in, all the, in the old castles. It yeah, felt like that. it does have that feel. Uh, yeah. And also, there's the medieval episode of Red Dwarf when they're filming in what's meant, meant to be a medieval town, but they deliberately have the in inverted commas present day medieval setting filmed against a ruined medieval yeah. castle because some of these castles look like they're really old yeah they're ruins yeah, basically the, the, but yeah, they yeah. still try and pass them off as if yeah. they're the actual things yeah they're working castles yeah <laughs> yeah and that's where i'm just like where's the money gone in this film because the whole thing looks so cheap yeah it does. even when you take the cgi out out of it any of the scenes that don't involve cgi look so cheap like they do. this film looks like it was made for six hundred thousand pounds or something it just looks so that, bad yeah if that i think if they want to retitle this film today it should be called dungeons and castles i think that's yeah. <laughs> or dungeons and dungeons with castles yeah we can't afford the dragons <laughs> some dragon <laughs> dungeons and poorly realized dragons the movie <laughs> But yeah, there's there's just nothing to it. I think the other thing that made me laugh is that they're battling over rods. And the red rod as well is so, like, flimsy as well. The red rod. Red rocket! Uh, I'm going to steal Jeremy Aaron's red rod. (laughs) But it's like... His red rod is glowing. There's rubber parts of it that shake. Oh, yeah. Like, they wobble when it's being used. Oh, it's, there's not a single part of this film that isn't poorly realised in some way. Nothing gets off scot I'll tell you what there is an awful lot of, though. CGI lens flare. There is an so incredible amount, lens yeah. and CGI glow. You think this is where J.J. Abrams took as a inspiration Ooh, maybe, from? Like, maybe. oh, I can do that, but with more. Actually, those are the things that I think were the most poorly realized. Anything yeah. that's glowing or sparkling, yeah. as well, like that little nymph that's eavesdropping on Thora Birch when it disappears. It had almost like they just insert a little like flash, yeah, for it's them to make them disappear. It's it's ridiculously bad, like yeah. ridiculously bad. Well, that's this film in a nutshell. Yeah, ridiculously bad. Th- this film, I usually write quite a lot of notes for films when I'm when I'm doing these, and I usually write sort of like ten to fifteen pages of notes. This is the first film we've done where I've written all of two pages, <laughs> and the first thing I write in this is "fuck this movie." This movie fucked you. Yeah, it, it fucked me hard with its big long rod. <laughs> with its red rod. Oh, the, I think the other thing as well is the get out of jail free card is all these magic doors. That seem to transport people to different places instantaneously. Oh, yeah. Which made me think as well. Why don't they just use that all the time? Like, anytime there's a hint of danger, magic yeah, ball. Yeah. I mean, they do pretty much use it all the time, actually, yeah. thinking about it. I think the only thing I want to mention as well is, like, at the end, was meant to have this celebration scene, but then we cut to a graveyard, which just looks like a normal graveyard anywhere. Yeah. But then, and Snail's grave as well looks like it's been there for decades. Yeah, and, but I was just going to say, 
this snail's character in the end is kind of technically meant to be like a war hero, really. Yeah. Why has he got such a shit grave? Shouldn't he have like a statue somewhere or something? Yeah, like he's that? got a couple of pebbles on top of each other. Yeah. With his name inscribed in one of the pebbles. <laughs> Like, and even that's poor CGI. Yeah. In the weird way, this reminded me of the Alan Quartermain scene in, in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as well. Oh, because it is. It's, it's the, same ending. the same ending. It's the same ending as League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And I saw a crossover there. But this executed much poorly than that. I mean, <laughs> it makes that film look like a masterpiece as well. Yeah, it does. Because at least it was sort of semi-competently made. In fact, this is probably this film's legacy is to make anything that's compared to it look yeah. much better. So if you think that you have a bad film, Compare it to Dungeons and Dragons, yeah, and then see how it fares. The the best films to compare this film with would definitely be your sci-fi movie of the week. Yeah, sci-fi original movie like Mammoth or yeah. Python Two. Well, as we actually go into the stats and facts and talk about the legacy of this yeah. film, I uh, I think we're gonna find some things out about where it went after this, where the series <laughs> went beyond this film. Yeah. So now that we've crawled through dungeons and fought off dragons, it's time for us to lay down our swords and turn to the books as we review the stats and facts. So how did Dungeons and Dragons fare in battle with the wordsmiths of old? It's over to the critics. So this film has a Rotten Tomato reading of 10% with an average rating of 3.1 out of 10. And this is after 91 reviews, so it's not like it's just a couple of reviews here and there. Yeah. It's a truly a poorly received film. And a critic's consensus says, Critics say this movie has a cheap look and is badly directed. Despite the presence of talented actors, the performances are really bad. And additionally, some people are offended at Marlon Wayne's characters calling it a racist throwback to black stereotypes. Which it, it really is. It's hard, yeah. hard to argue with any of that. And even on an audience score rating, it has 19%. But again, I always think that the audience ratings are slightly too high, which is reflected here. It has an average rating of 2.2 out of 5, which I think is way too high. It definitely does have a so bad it's good factor. Oh, most certainly. But I would definitely say, just don't watch it on your own, because you won't have that much fun <laughs> with it, but definitely watch it in a group. Yeah. It's one of those things where you can probably have a drinking game to where every time you see like a spiralling CGI city, yeah. or every time somebody's overacting, you can definitely garner some great drinking games out of this film and have a lot of fun with it as a group. Yeah. So I think that's probably where the audience figure goes higher definitely agree with you on that and over to the first review we have it's from empire and they awarded the film one out of five stars as Oof. we said earlier <laughs> and the critic who reviewed the film is emma cochran and she says despite it all it does have a certain appeal at least to younger viewers the dragons and animated cityscapes are decent and it's certainly no worse <laughs> than krull which seems to enjoy a cult following maybe one day this can aspire to as much Nah. Pleasing special effects and some daft humour don't go far towards salvaging this absurd fancy yarn. If you absolutely must get some D&D &D action, then dig out the 80s cartoon series instead. Yeah. <laughs> Which, that review, for a 1 out of 5 star, it actually comes down slightly more positive than I would expect. And also, the special effects is far from pleasing. No. Over to Roger Ebert, he awarded the film similarly. He gave it 1.5 out of 4. And he says, Dungeons & Dragons looks like they threw away the game and photographed the box it came in. It's an amusing movie to look at in its own odd way, but close your eyes and the dialogue sounds like an overwrought junior high school play. <laughs> yeah. High marks for anyone who can explain the role that dragons play in the Izmirian ecology. Which <laughs> is <laughs> so very true. That's spot on. It's really spot on. But yeah, so that's what the critics have to say. Needless to say, they didn't come down easy on this film, and probably rightly so. Definitely. Any so. kind of enjoyments to be had, I agree with Roger Ebert in that you can enjoy it in its own odd way. Yeah. And it's the same way that you were saying earlier yeah. on, yeah. 
So, anyway, how did this film fare at the box office? I mean, a year later, we had Lord of the Rings coming out, breaking box office records. So, surely, this did similarly. Over to you, Andy. So, this is a film that had a, a $45 million budget, which I don't know where that went. I'm pretty sure it went mostly... Cocaine and hookers. Well, I'm pretty much sure it went on Jeremy Irons' castle, but, yeah. <laughs> and probably, like, Scary Movie 2's production budget or something like that. Oh, of like course, that. yeah. I guess but, that has um, come from somewhere. Yeah. This is the film that had a total domestic gross of $15 million and a foreign gross of $18.5 million. And worldwide, obviously, it made a total of just under $34 million. So $9 million shy of its original budget. It's still more than I would expect it to make, considering, like, a, you could even say it's sub Uwe Ball, because yeah. I think a Dungeon Siege even looks slightly better than this, although it had a $60 million budget. I think the only thing that would have saved it at the time is obviously Dungeons & Dragons fans. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that there was a Lord of the Rings film coming out. Yeah. So it would have whetted people's appetites. Yeah. And also the poster makes it look a lot better than it actually mm-hmm. is. But that's the thing. I think it actually made slightly more than I would expect because, mm. like say, a Dungeon Siege movie, I think, made about $3 million yeah. in all or $5 million worldwide. And that's what this film should be making considering the kind of production values that are on show here. But also, to talk about that budget for a second and to just reframe it in a new light to recontextualize what $45 million really means to a film. So this film yeah. was made for $45 million. It's uh, about an hour and 40 minutes long. Yep. If we compare that to the first Lord of the Rings film, The Fellowship of the Ring... That was made for 90 million, or I think like about 88 million. Yeah. Right? So it's made for just under double what this yeah. film costs. Yeah, the runtime is twice as long for Lord of the Rings, Fellowship yeah. of the Ring. So essentially, per minute, it works out. <laughs> Round about the same as the yeah. Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. And yet, look how much worse off it comes out. It has looking. a lot more actors in it. A lot yeah. more characters. Yeah, it does. A lot more different places as well. A lot more ambition. I imagine a lot of that money is just wasted because it just goes to show if you have a, a director with skill making a film like this and then compare it to somebody who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. You know, you're basically you're dealing with the same kind of money. Look what can happen. Yeah. And again, it's a film that has double the runtime. Mm-hmm. So you're getting twice as many screenings in a day. Yep. And then this, this is what happens. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the actual results is that, you, you know, this is like uh, pocket money for Lord of the Rings. It really is. So, yeah. <laughs> I think Lord of the Rings farted this money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at the week that it opened at and I'm just like, this is not a classic week for films. At all. Can you give us a rundown of right, a so, few of the films that were released that week? So Dungeons & Dragons opened at number five uh, that week. And you just got a, a whole host of, well, some of them okay. I would never say any of them are particularly great films. You've got How the Grinch Stole Christmas at number one, which made $18 million in its fourth week. And The Grinch is kind of an okay film. Yeah. But it, it seemed to be more of a classic. It's got a very high nostalgic value for people these days, I think. But I don't yeah. think it's as good as people make it out to be. I think nostalgia is making a lot of these films much better than they actually are because I think mm. another one that gets a similar kind of reception is The Polar Express. I really yeah. don't understand how no, that's I become don't. a kind of a no. Christmas classic. Yeah. Um, we've got Vertical Limit at number two, <laughs> which made $15.5 million on its first week. Then we've got Proof of Life. Uh, Russell Crowe, I think, and Meg Ryan. Oh, they had an affair on that film, Ooh, I seem to remember. Yeah. That made $10 million in its first week. And then we've got the um, the M. Night Shyamalan film, Unbreakable. I loved Unbreakable. Yeah. That's my favourite M. Night Shyamalan yeah. film. That's probably one of the best films in this bunch, actually. And that made uh, $7.5 million in its third week. Yeah. Then we've got Dungeons and Dragons at five. We've got 102 Dalmatians <laughs> at number six. And I always forget that film's even been made. Yeah. You know what? 
Ian Griffith, he made some really bad choices as an actor. He could have been a really big actor and ended up being yeah. in that and uh, Fantastic Four and his career just gone... It really was, has. I think the last film I saw, I remember, was San Andreas with yeah, The Rock. because he was one of those guys, like, when he was doing, like, Hornblower and stuff, he could have been massive, and it yeah. just went there. But anyway, yeah, you've got that. You've got Rugrats in Paris, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about films that we uh, that we saw on our own with no one else in the cinema, I saw the first Rugrats movie on my own in the cinema. There was no one else in the whole theatre. I went to a packed house there. Yeah, I was it. on my own. <laughs> Although I did, I was living in Devon at the time, so that probably ah, explains right. a lot. Yeah, I remember when I saw the first Rugrats film, I only ever saw it because there was nothing else on. And what I actually went to the cinema to see was Arlington Road, <laughs> the like conspiracy thriller. Yeah. And it wasn't on. So instead, I had to go see Rugrats just to yeah. pass the time. We've got um, Meet the Parents in its 10th week, which made $3 million. Which is probably the most popular of that lot. Yeah, definitely. Say. We've got Another one rearing its head, which is the first Charlie's Angels. I'm pretty sure we mentioned the second Charlie's Angel the other week. Full throttle? No, this is the first one. Oh, right. Not full throttle. This is Charlie's Angels half throttle. Oh, Uh, this is the one where um, I think Bill Murray headbutted Mick G, the director, in the making of this film. He's not in the second one, is he? No, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that made two and a half million dollars in its sixth week. And then we've got Bounce. I've never heard of it. But yeah, it's just a real mixed bag. That's definitely not a classic week. If anything, it's poised for a success during that type of week. Yeah. Like, surely, surely. Yeah. It's, it's like that week is begging for a yeah. big film. But this film's so bad that it can't even compete in no. a market like that. So No. But yeah, it has gone on to have a minor franchise of its own because this isn't the last Dungeons and Dragons of this particular no. film series that has been released. We've had two more films. Uh, I think the second one's called Wrath of the King, Dragon King or something yeah. like that. And then a third one that I can't remember what it's called. The second one's still got Bruce Payne in it. Yeah. Reprising his Damador role. Both were like made for sci-fi channel movies, which yeah. I'd say is far more appropriate for this series. Definitely. Well, far more appropriate for this series given its current status anyway. I think it's one of those things that could definitely be revitalized and made well. Yeah. I think with any of these kind of things, because they are slightly derivative of other things, it's always going to come as looking a little bit like a rip-off. It's never going to be quite as good as your, mm-hmm. as your Lord of the Rings. But having said that, if you get it in the right hands, then they can become quite compelling in their own right. And if they sort of definitely emphasize those more original and off-the-wall elements that are part of the game, then, yeah, they can definitely make something that's distinctive, at least. Yeah, I do agree. When I talk about series, I only refer to the film series. I definitely think there's potential in the property. So, with that said, all that is left for me is to ask the two questions. And first up, are you any closer to understanding why Dungeons & Dragons has been forgotten? Yep. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've already summarised. I think I knew that before I even started watching the film. It's an inferior product. It's a terribly made film that has been quickly... I I wouldn't even say it's been brushed under the rug. It's a sci-fi level film that's only really ever appealed to people that really like so bad they're good films. It's the bottom of the bargain bin film. Yeah, it truly is. And finally, is Dungeons and Dragons one of the best of the forgotten movies or should it remain best forgotten? I think I speak for both of us when I say that this is a film that should remain best forgotten. But like you said earlier, it is a film that would benefit from watching for entertainment reasons. Maybe an ironic watch, you know, with a few beers, a film that you can really laugh at. That's what this is. But I think the revelation for me 
was going into this, I knew it was going to be best forgotten, but I didn't realize how much yeah. best forgotten it's going to be because <laughs> it just nothing prepared me for how awful and how incompetently made this film was. It's one of the most obvious choices that we've ever had to make. Yeah. There are a few films that we've covered that are as best forgotten as yeah. this. But I think it, for me, it genuinely shocked me how bad it was, like how yeah. badly put together it was because I always thought, oh, it's going to have a lot of flaws, but it's at least going to sort of be all right looking. It's going to really look maybe look a little bit cheap mm-hmm. but it, nothing prepared me for how shit it looked yeah you know how shitly executed it was i've never seen anything on that budget look that bad no and we've seen superman 4 i so. think <laughs> that i've only ever seen one film that looks bad that was made for a similar budget and that was a sound of thunder and that was because the uh, studio making it went bankrupt yeah this doesn't even have that excuse yeah. Okay, so yeah, I think that's it. It's definitely a Best Forgotten Movie. And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fanbase, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. And join us next week as we're turning our heat rays on Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. But until then, it's bye from myself and cheerio from Andy. Get out of my goddamn basement! Thanks for listening. <laughs>